Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It is my great pleasure to welcome a very dear and close friend, Rabbi Shmuel Golden, to our conversation today. Rabbi Golden served for 33 years in one of the most prominent pulpits in America, Congregation Avatorah in Englewood, New Jersey. And before that, he was the Beth Shalom in Potomac, Jacob in Beverly Hills as the assistant rabbi. And he has occupied almost every significant communal position a rabbi can, can occupy, including, of course, past president of the Rabbinical Council of America, and before that, the president of the RCBC, the Rabbinical Council of Bergen County, etc. But even beyond that, Rabbi Golden is also an author of, of a series on Chomish, known as Unlocking the Torah Text, and also a wonderful Haggadah in that series as well, which is a combination of both great scholarship and the ability to communicate that scholarship to the masses. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Golden. Thank you for joining me today, Rabbi. Good to be here, uh, to, be part, to be on a, a program run by such a dear friend and someone I hold in such high esteem. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I neglected to say that uh, you made Aliyah four years ago, which is probably one of the most important things that has happened. Well, I'm here in the States now. Yes. Um, so, Rabbi, first of all, I'm going to need you to talk a little louder because I think you moved back. You forgot what it is to talk from the pulpit, apparently. Hey. Uh, you don't have to move too close. Let's talk louder. But the reality, Rabbi, is I guess the first question I want to start out with is what's it like for an American rabbi who is one of the leading rabbis in America to make Aliyah and become a balabos? <laughs> All right, so I, I think the, the first thing you need to know, and you already know it, but the first thing the audience needs to know is that uh, it was my wife that was really the impetus for our Aliyah. Um, I had been a rabbi at Congregation Avastro for many years. We went on sabbatical to Israel at that point, she and I reached an agreement that I would sign a 12-year contract with the congregation, leading me to age 65, and then we would go on Aliyah. As you well know, as I reached age 63, 64, I started lobbying against that decision. I felt that I was on the top of my game. I was involved with so many things. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being rabbi of the congregation, and my wife pushed real hard, and she said, absolutely not. And she was 100% correct. Um, I, my kids said, leave while most of them still want you to stay. And that really was, was what happened, that I, I left. It was a, a wonderful feeling with the show. Um, we had accomplished a great deal. And I came to Israel at a point where I still have enough energy to do things that I really enjoy, to continue to teach. I teach at the OU Center and other, other locations. I continue to write. Um, so... It's been much easier than I thought. That said, at the same time, um, it does have its moments and there are things that I really miss. I miss being in the mix. I miss making a difference in people's lives the way I did in the rabbinate. And I miss, uh, like you said, I miss uh, being a Rav and not just a Balabos. Uh, and in terms of being a Balabos in Israel, are there, you know, we, we imagine shuls as community centers. Israel is a very different kind of structure. So when Americans go on Aliyah, generally the shul is, ju is just the place to daven. Are there shuls like we have in America and Israel? I think you're hitting on something that's very important. Um, 
there's a huge difference between shuls in America and shuls in Israel as, as a whole. And that is that the shul in America is the, is the, is the locus of your entire Jewish identity. The people you know, the people you speak to, the people you learn with, the people whose children go to schools and the same schools that your children go to. And it's the place you go to to um, come home to your Jewishness. In Israel, for years, that's not the case. Israel is a Jewish country. You walk the street, you feel Jewish. Um, your shul really is the place where you come to Daman and not much more. Having said that, with the growing number of uh, olim from countries like the United States and Great Britain and others, there are some shuls that are beginning to take on the roles that the shuls in the diaspora do. And it's interesting to watch because more and more, there's a, there's a growing recognition that even for Israelis, you need that locus, you need that place to come home to. So it's, it's developing very, very slowly and, and very sporadically. Uh, Israel would have to, the community would have to invest financially in, in, in Rabonim and in, in, in the show much now. Um, we'll see. But uh, the neighborhood you're in, are there shows like that? You're in Talpiot Arnona. Right. So we're in Talpiot Arnona, right across from Baca, really. So we're, we're very near. I, I, there is one show, Nitzanim, which has more of an American model. And that's because Rabbi, uh, the Rav, I think it's Rabbi Finkelstein. Finkelstein, Finkelstein, Rabbi Finkelstein, correct, actually served as a Rav in the States for many years. And that was a good part of his training. So when he came back to Israel, he created, he took a shul that was already in existence and began to create it in the mold of the shuls that we know. And it's been very popular. Um, but most of the shuls are not. The shul that we attend uh, is, is an Israeli shul, really. It's, it, it, is a, it is a place where there's a chevra, there are people. But at the same time, with corona, we've been davening ourselves, a lot of, a lot of uh, our chevra, my chevra. And we're looking perhaps to start our own, <laughs> which is something that I would have fought against against uh, as a rub in America, but uh, find myself part of now in Eretz Israel. Well, people have told me, I have a close friend in Israel who told me the story that because of the outside minyanim in Israel, he met people in his neighborhood who he would have never met before that he's a member of the Haredi community and there were people in the Datilumi community that were part of the Minyan and it's, it's changed his perspective. That's Did you have that same experience? I imagine that's the case. In, in our situation, things are a little bit different. We moved into a, a complex where, Baruch Hashem, there are a lot of people who are very much like us. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful chevra of, of Olim who have kids in America and kids in Israel and are jockeying between those, those extremes and, and who are really very going through much of the same kind of, of experience that we're going through. And we've formed a group and that's the group that's been davening together for COVID. And that's the group that's looking to perhaps uh, establish itself. Uh -huh. Is there more than one American rabbi in that group? Uh, there is, and uh, we, so who's going to get the show? We're, we're not going to have a rub. It looks like <laughs> we're going to have a bunch of rub on him. It's not. You also have done it again to it to our, in our defense. We did approach the show that most of us are members of 
to ask if they would like to have a branch. So whether or not they take us up on it, it's not clear, but uh, we're not looking to do this uh, to split away. We're doing it because there is, there actually is a need. It, the, the show we go to is very, it has been very crowded before COVID and will probably become crowded again. And there are very few seats. So there's a need for it. So it, not- it do sound like you've made this transition to being a balabas very well. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with the, the positives and the negatives. Uh, now, in terms of Israel, you know, all of us dream of going on Aliyah, something that you've done. What was the hardest part of that experience? I, I think part of it you hit on, which is the transition from the rabbinate to, to the non-rabbinate. Although in my case, I have been very fortunate because I've been afforded with, with wonderful opportunities to continue teaching. So on some level, I continue to play the, the rabbinic role. Um, for me, the hardest, well, I, I'll, I guess I'll let your, your listeners in on a secret. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of anxious and a bit of a hypochondriac. And in Englewood, New Jersey, whenever I had an issue, I had dozens of doctors at my fingertips to turn to, to, to assist me in my anxiety. Uh, in Israel, uh, I got to get used to being one of a number of people who are dealing with the health system in Israel. So that's been very hard for me. Other than that, it's been pretty good. And this year with Shlita coming up, have you had a chance to think about how you're going to deal as a balabas with Shemitah? Shemitah, obviously there's the, the Heter Mechira, which some people rely upon or don't. There's the Otzer Beitin, there's the Vulchutz. Have you had that chance to think? Yeah, we've been talking about it, uh, my wife and I, and, and we, we actually were confronted with something specific because I think what we decided primarily was that we were going to deal with Otzer Bezdin as much as possible. And if we could not do Otzer Bezdin, then, then we would rely on Heteromachira. We're not comfortable with with, with uh, Peros Chul because we want to support Israel, and we want to support the farmers in Israel, um, and therefore, just it just seems to me to be counter counterintuitive to be buying from from non Jews when you can buy from Jews. Uh, the the thing that that the the particular decision we had to make is that I was invited, although at this point with COVID going the way it is, it may it may not happen. I was invited to participate as a scholar in residence at a hotel in in Tel Aviv for a program with AACI. Uh, the American the Association of Americans and Canadians in Israel. And that hotel, I probably relies on Heter Mechira. And we, we had to decide that, although, again, that we would primarily rely on, on uh, Otsar Bezdin, that for certain, in certain situations, we would rely on the Heter Mechira, and we're willing to go if the program goes on. Mm-hmm. And just to switch for a moment over to the books you've written, the Unlocking the Torah Text, how did you get into this idea of creating these books? As a rabbi, you're busy. It takes a lot of time. And then all the writing a book as well. All right. So a little background. First of all, um, one of my grandfathers, uh, my father's father was Hyman E. Golden. Hyman E. Golden, uh, you may recognize the name, listeners, is, is, uh, was a one-man art scroll in the early 1900s. He came over from Asia Shuck taught himself English, taught him, put himself through law school and wrote close to 50 books. The Kitzer translation of the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch is his. 
the Madrich, the first Madrich is his, uh, a Jewish woman in her home, a whole range of books. I've always wanted to have a shelf that said golden, golden, and then golden, golden on it. So Baruch Hashem, I'm very thankful that the Kodesh Baruch Hu gave me that opportunity. But the real, the, what really happened was uh, we went on sabbatical for a year. And my wife again turned to me and she's my best impetus. And she says, you've been wanting to write all forever. This is your year, start. And I had in mind, I really didn't, it, it, was, it was really a, a bit of a, a, a leap because when you start writing something like this, you don't know whether it's going to be picked up. You don't know whether it's going to be published. You don't know, you're, you're, you're really working in the dark. But what I had in mind was to take a parashiot of the Torah and to follow the lead of Nechama Leibowitz, to, to, to talk, take sugyot. And I said, I want to make, take that approach and make it more, even more accessible to a larger audience. And what I did was I, I used a lot of the material that I had, you know, Rabbi Matanki, you've got tons of material. <laughs> I've seen a lot of it, uh, which could, you could turn into wonderful books. We've got so much material that we used over the years. And it forced me to take that material and, uh, and to really validate it. Because when you when you do do it orally, when you do it in sermons, you always have deniability. You know, you, know, you misunderstood me. That's not what I really said. But once you write it down, and it took it took all those ideas, and I began to write them down, and I began to take sugyot and answer, ask critical questions, and answer them, and footnote. And it it was a and that first year, uh, that sabbatical year, gave me the opportunity to conclude pretty much conclude my volume on Bereshit. And once I had that template, I was able to go back to the States. As you say, I, I, found, I found that there was a lot of downtime, that I would take my writing with me when I went to weddings or when I went to bar mitzvahs or whatever. And, and whatever downtime I had, I was writing and writing and writing. So I managed. I, the process of the five books were about 10 years? Yes, I would, it was about a 10-year process. Um, but what was interesting is the first publisher I went to that was willing to publish it told me they would only publish it if I wrote all five volumes at once. The second publisher, the one that I finally worked with, Geffen Publishing, was willing to publish them volume by volume. And once that, once that process began, it, you know, it gave me impetus to, to, to continue and to, to, to move on. And for the small commercial plug, it's available both from Geffen and Amazon and the OU Press also. Is a correct. The, o, the OU Press, correct. It's, it's, these are OU books. I, thanks for the plug. <laughs> no, my, my pleasure. And because of that, you know, today, if you go to Israel, I was just there a few weeks ago, and you open up Torah Tidbits, the new improved Torah Tidbits. There is a column from Rabbi Shmuel Golden every, every week, I believe. Not every week. Um, I'm, I'm doing it on, at my choice, I'm doing it once a month. Oh, just once a month. Okay. Yeah, I'm just doing, I'm doing a column uh, for, for Shabbos Mubarakin. So okay. Like, and you also now are writing for the Jewish press. I'm answering, uh, I, they asked me to be on a panel for their, is it proper uh, feature where they ask rabbis specific questions, not halachic necessarily in nature, although they always are somewhat. Um, but also, is it proper to do certain things? If you would have told me years ago I would write for the Jewish press, I, I would say, <laughs> ain't going to happen. <laughs> uh, 
I am enjoying the, the, that as well. And I'm and also working on another volume. I'm working on a volume now uh, of the cycle of the year. Well, hopefully the same template called Unlocking the Jewish Year. So, and, and here's a plug. I'm working with Rabbi Matanki on uh, the uh, new madrich for the RCA at their request. And we're, we're working on it together and, that's very meaningful, given that my grandfather wrote, was the one who wrote the first Madrich. No, it's it's very meaningful to be able to work together with you as well. So that's that is, that is, that is a continuing project, and hopefully it'll be finished in the next several months, the, the first round, then the editing and everything else to go for, with it. For our listeners to know that our relationship was actually forged through our leadership in the RCA. Uh, Rabbi Matanki was vice president when I was president and then became president when I stepped down. And uh, it was a friendship that, that was forged in, 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 in that, in that uh, fire. And thank God has been a wonderful, wonderful addition to my life. Robert. Well, thank you very much. And you, you did uh, characterize it correctly because some of those years there were some fires. Yes, there were. Yes, <laughs> there were. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> uh, now, when you come back to the States, and I know you, you don't go to back to your shul that much. You do come back once in a while. You give your successor is Rabbi Chaim Pupko, also a Chicagoan, uh, but only a Chicagoan could fill your shoes, of course. But when you come back and you look at this, the American scene now with a different set of eyes, what do you see that's differently? That's an excellent question. Um... You know, there's so much, so much to talk about on that front. Um, it's not that I see things with different eyes. The first thing I think that I realized, and I, I sort of knew it before, but I don't didn't know it as as clearly as I know it now. It's important for the American Jewish community to know the vastly different experiences that characterize the lives of Jews in Israel of the Israeli citizens. Um, I used to think that anyone with a kippah srugah automatically thought like me. <laughs> you know, so I would meet, you know, every, obviously everyone who wears a kippah srugah in Israel thinks like I do, and it's not accurate. But we are forged in different experience, from different experiences. And the, the issues that Israelis confront and the issues that Americans confront are vastly, vastly different. Um, you know, you know, just to, to make it on a put it on a simplistic level, while Americans in, in Tina Englewood and Teaneck and Chicago will sit down at the Shabbos table and discuss what you should vote or what colleges their kids are going to, the Israelis are discussing which flu guy in the army their kids are going to. And these the, the kids grow up a lot faster. A lot. It, it's I like my, my grandchildren are wonderful Americans and Israelis, but the Israelis have a head start. They 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 they're pushed to grow up a lot faster, and the values are are Im, embedded in them. I think even earlier than they are in the states, uh, and I think it's important. I think it's important that we recognize the vastly different experiences between the two communities. The other thing that I think that the American Jewish community is, is, has to deal with uh, is something that we, you and I had 
in our Rabbonus, but it's going to become much, even more compelling. And that is, what does it mean to be a Zionist in an era where you are living in a diaspora of choice as opposed to a diaspora of force? What does it mean? What is it? How do you define Zionism when you have the option of living in Eretz Israel? Now, I want to be clear. Aliyah is not for Aliyah is not for everyone, and there are valid reasons that people might choose to live elsewhere. Um, nonetheless, there should be a, a tension. There should be a, the minute we let go of that tension, then 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 we have a problem, and that tension should be that that even if. Even if you have a valid reason for living in the, in, in the States or in England or wherever you are, it should bother you that you're not in Israel. It should bother you that you're not home. And I think that that has to be cultivated. Um, Do you think, you know, looking over the 30 years, the three decades plus that you were rabbi and now the four years you've been gone, when you were rabbi in, in Englewood in the early years, there was a, a population that had this direct connection with Israel. They had experienced existential threats, wars. The teenagers had that as well. By the time you left and today, it has been very much removed to the extent that we find Jewish teens, maybe not with any large numbers from our communities, but Jewish teens taking positions that are very much against the state. Do you see it's something that we're able to impact on in Chutzlaretz and diaspora to say, hey, you got to love Israel, you got to feel it, or is it something that either is there or not, or we can't make that I, I think we have to work at it. I think it. I think we have to work at it. I think we have to cultivate it. I, I think that, that we have to, I think we have to recognize the changes that you're pointing to and respond to them and not just deal with things the way we've dealt with them in the past. In other words, we've got to look at it and say, okay, now you're right. These kids are growing up with Israel as a fact. The Six Day War, all those memories that we have are not the memories that they have. How are we going to make Israel important to them? How are we going to convince them that this is, that this is something that should, they should feel a connection to? And that they, the fact that they're living in a time where Israel exists is, is, is a vastly different point in Jewish history than, 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 than their grandparents and great-grandparents. It, it, we have to work at it. It's not something that's going to come. It's not something that's... And, and, and you know that, I, that I, I've, I've said for years, by the way, that the other piece of the diaspora thing, the puzzle, is that, that as much as we should feel connected to Israel... I believe we should recognize that as long as we're not living there, we're limited partners. And the idea of going against the, go the existing government, whether we agree with its decisions or not, as diaspora Jews is something that we gotta think of very, very carefully and very, very, uh, you know, be very, very cautious about. So if you were coming back now, let's say you were taking a sabbatical from Israel to come back to a shul in America, how would your message be different? than it was when you were rabbi for all the years at Englewood? Uh, wow. I think my message would be more mature. Um, that, that, the be that so much of what American Jews are dedicating their energy towards, whether it's 
sometimes conspicuous consumption, whether it's sometimes uh, growth in their, in their, that they should take a step back. They should really take a step back and recognize that sometimes we're just chasing our tails. And sometimes we're, we're really looking for things that will not enhance our lives. And we're literally looking things for things that we think will enhance our lives, but won't. And I look, for example, at communities like Englewood and others where, where, where we live in huge homes and, and very often the, the adding just another room we think is going to make that big a difference in our lives. And, I'm, and I want to shake people and say, it's not going to do that. You're going to build that extra room and you're still going to be looking for something. So take a step back and let's try to understand what we're looking for. What we're looking for is meaning. What we're looking for is significance. What we're looking for is connection to, to, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to our tradition. And those are the things, the value, the values that we want. It shouldn't just be things that we espouse. They should really be the things that guide our lives. Is it possible in the Golden Medina of America? being involved in general society, being members of what we'll refer to as whether it's the modern Orthodox community or the centrist Orthodox community, are those connections really possible? They are possible, but they're extraordinarily difficult. And that's why being a Rav is so, so critical in, in, in communities like ours. I, I'm sure you've seen it. There have been people within our communities that have successfully made those decisions, but there are so many who haven't. And that's what we have to work on. We have to, we really have to shake ourselves up and say, what is it you're chasing? What is it you're looking for? What is it that we not take it back? Take it back. Never say you. What is it that we're looking for? What is it that we're chasing? What is it? What is it that we're trying to? And what will fill our lives with meaning? And how much time are we spending on those things? You know, I, you know I, we, we, I preached it when I was there, but I think I would preach it even more strongly now. Um, you know, I, that, that famous line, I don't know who, who said it, or who, that you, know, you never find someone, God forbid, on their deathbed saying, gosh, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. In other words, what are the things that we're looking for? And can we, can we really focus our lives on them? Which is, by the way, not only a valuable message, but also a real challenge to a Rav. Um, I remember growing up and looking at rabbis and their families and noticing, unfortunately, that often families suffered from the fact that, that the father, the husband, was a communal figure. Is that balance even possible that... When you're speaking to others, you can also be speaking to the rabbis in the world. So important, so important that we recognize that the sacrifices that our families are making and that we do what we can to not mitigate those sacrifices, but to balance them with our attention and our love and our concern. I, I often will speak about the fact that Moshe's children disappear in the text you know, that's a whole, a whole other discussion. But you have to wonder whether or not one of the lessons is that, that if you take these rabbinic roles, then there will be a cost unless you're careful. And the carefulness now that you've made it to Israel is a little bit easier because you're with the family in Israel now. No, it's a little easier on that, on that uh, side, but it's a little harder 
from those from whom we are distant. So mm-hmm. it, it's either way. It's 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 got its uh, pluses and its minuses. <laughs> well, Rabbi Golden, believe it or not, our time is up on this conversation. I truly appreciate the time you've given me, but also your friendship for so many years. And if everyone doesn't know it by now, um, in the Golden Home, the one person we also should have interviewed was Barbara, the Rebbitson, who made sure that, that the Golden family made Aliyah and apparently also made sure that the Sfarim had been coming out. I made sure that our kids turned out the way they did, thank God. Yes, I will give the same credit to Margaret on that one for sure. <laughs> and I thank you very much for your time. I uh, hope that everything for your last brief period of time visiting the United States goes very, very well. Thank you. And I look forward to continuing to read and to learn from you for many years to come. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You well. Bye all.